You are listening to the Hill City Church Podcast. Our mission is to become and make disciples who walk with God, connect with people, and impact the world. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor here. It is so good to be with you as we continue our teaching series, Fruit. We are just over halfway. Can we celebrate that? We're going through the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5 because we want to be a church that is marked by the kinds of things that are found in God himself. These kind of attributes or characteristics. And uh, you might have noticed this common thread throughout our fruit teaching series that if we want that fruit, we have to find it first in God. And when we walk by the Spirit, when we connect with Jesus, we've been using this phrase, fruit happens. It happens because God is the source of every single one of these. And yet today, as we talk about kindness, I'm not so sure that that would be one of the first words that people think of when they think of God. A.W. Tozer has this line, I think it's so helpful, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And, uh, you know, when we think about, you know, love, that's the first fruit of the Spirit, it's like, okay, there's that Bible verse, God is love, okay, that makes sense, you think about peace, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, all of that sort of stuff, but then you get to kindness, and maybe for you, you would describe God as, as being kind, but I can tell you that people outside of the church don't tend to think about God that way. Uh, they, they maybe picture an angry old man who's frowning. Uh, they think of God's wrath. Uh, I think about this line just perfectly sums it up from Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, right? This is how he describes God. I'm not quoting him because I agree with him, to be clear, but I think this gives us a picture or perspective of what people think about when they think about God. He says this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, as he says, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, philicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. According to Richard Dawkins. Now, he's hardly an unbiased source, right? He's, he wrote that in a book called The God Delusion. And yet, just reading that, I think gives us a perspective. Think about the people that you know who don't know God. What do they think about when they think about God? And, you know, if we're not careful, this problem is not only a theological problem, but a personal problem, a practical problem. Uh, This is a major barrier for many people in in coming to receive the gospel and coming to know who Jesus is. So I'll just address it really briefly. The Old and New Testament uh, display and describe both God's justice and his mercy. And what we have to understand is that God's love, his mercy, are his, his normative, it's 
characteristics and God's wrath is a reactive characteristic. It's actually his righteous response to evil and injustice. Uh, A great example of this is Isaiah 63, uh, verse 7. The first six verses of Isaiah 63 are describing the day of the Lord's judgment, right? So they're pretty harsh, right? Punishment. And yet, look at what Isaiah writes in Isaiah 63, verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them, according to what? His compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. That verse immediately follows all this talk about God's... So you see there's a tension there, right? There's a tension there. And we can acknowledge that, and I don't have time to spend the rest of the sermon talking about that, right? That's a great conversation. But we can, we can acknowledge that both the Old and the New Testament are honest about who God is. That yes, God does have wrath and judgment, and that's his appropriate righteous response to evil and injustice in the world and in our lives. But God's normative, his, you could say his central characteristics are love, compassion, kindness. And like I said, for many people, they can even understand that theologically. But I would just ask this question, if God is kind, why aren't we? Because for many people, their perspective of God is not so much even influenced because they read Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion or because they read the Old Testament and had a really hard time with it. For some people, it certainly is. It's, it's kind of a, an academic problem, right? How can I understand this? But for many people, they met a really mean Christian. And I've met really mean Christians. Some of the meanest people I've known have been church people, right? And that, I think, is where we have our serious disconnect. It's hindering our witness. It's hindering our ability to preach the good news, is people don't think of us here on a Sunday morning as the kind of people that they want to hang out with on a Friday night. If God is truly kind, if that's a central attribute of our Father in heaven, then why aren't we. We're going to look at the life of Christ today, Matthew chapter 14. If you have a Bible, open it to Matthew 14. We're going to look at uh, an example that Jesus, the Son of God, embodies kindness to a group of people. This is uh, one of the only miracles that's actually written about in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's one of those things where we can say, pay attention. This is important. We're going to be in Matthew 14. We're going to be starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard about this, we'll talk about what that is in just a moment, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He wants to get away. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And he went ashore, and he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. The thing that Jesus heard about that, caught, that prompted him to get away is at the beginning of Matthew chapter 14, uh, there's King Herod. King Herod had executed, put to death, martyred John the Baptist. So John the Baptist was not only a relative 
of Jesus, but he was the prophet in the spirit of Elijah who came to prepare the way for Jesus, the Messiah. It's a big deal. Uh, Now, it's a little bit out of order chronologically in Matthew. John the Baptist likely didn't die immediately before Jesus went across uh, to, to the end of Matthew 14. But I think Matthew, who's one of the 12 disciples, he's actually there in the boat with Jesus. He knows what's on Jesus's mind. And I think he intentionally arranged this aspect, this story is John dies and Jesus is processing through the death of John the Baptist. Ministry is hard. I don't know if you know that, but it's, it's really hard. It's taxing. Uh, it, you're, you're never off the clock. That's a saying that pastors have, and that's especially true of Jesus. There are moments that we see in the ministry of Jesus Christ that him, his disciples, they didn't even have time to eat lunch, and they're just so incredibly busy. So, so we have to remember at times like this that not only is Jesus the son of God but, and fully God, but he's also fully human. So he gets tired, like physically tired. He, he did keep the Sabbath, right? Contrary to, you know, there are certain moments where he didn't follow the Sabbath exactly like the religious leaders uh, thought he would, but he kept it because he needed rest. And he's frequently getting away by himself to these desolate places. Sometimes that Greek word is eremos, the wilderness, the desert, getting away from it all. And that's what he's doing here. Maybe physically to sleep, I love that story. He's in the boat, you know, the storm. What's he doing? Taking a nap, right? Jesus napped. It's a spiritual thing to do. So so physically to get away, just to have like a break, a day off, but then like emotionally and mentally to actually process and grieve and, and, and process through loss. And maybe he's not only thinking about the death of John the Baptist, maybe he's actually thinking forward because he knows the cross is coming. He knows what he's in store for. So maybe he's even processing through what he's going to go through. Whatever his motivation, you get the point. He needs to get away. This is a spiritual retreat with himself and his 12 disciples. And what he finds when the boat shows up to the shore on the other side of the Sea of Galilee is the crowds have tracked him down. Now, put this into perspective. How would you respond in a situation like this. Tomorrow night, I'm flying out to Australia. I'm gonna be gone for three weeks. Please don't text me. (laughs) If you email me, that's fine. I'm not gonna reply to your email for the next three weeks. Just to put this into perspective, I'm gonna go through great lengths. I'll be like 18 hours time zone different than everything ministry-wise that's going on here. I'm bringing my family. I'll be with uh, my parents. Imagine that I get off the plane at the Sydney International Airport, and I turn my phone off of airplane mode, and all of a sudden, I have 20,000 text messages from church people who need me, and there's problems, and can you meet, and can we talk, can you help, and the building, you know, and all the stuff, and right? Put that in perspective. Do you think that I would be happy about that? No, right? That's, that's essentially, you know, that's a modern, modern way of understanding what Jesus is dealing with. He's trying to get away, and the problems or the people and the needs and the demands of ministry follow him to his spiritual place of quiet. And if you're anything like me, our gut response would be irritation, annoyance, 
anger, perhaps. If I was Jesus, I'd be like, Peter, turn that boat around. Like, let's find another, let's find another spot. But how does Jesus respond? He responds with, keyword, compassion. Compassion. This is why this is so important. Kindness begins with compassion. Kindness begins with compassion. We all know what kindness is. It's doing something kind. It's doing something nice. It's blessing someone, helping someone, doing good for for the benefit of the other person. And if we're not careful, out of obedience or obligation or duty, we we could easily turn this into, we need to do more nice things. And there's, there's people, well-intentioned, who do the right thing without a heart of compassion, and people can tell. It only takes a few seconds. You're there standing in line at the soup kitchen, and there's that, you know, that, pers- that church person slopping the soup down, doing the right thing without a heart of compassion, though. One of the words, it breaks my heart, that people outside the church often use to describe Christians is hypocrites. That's how we get hypocrisy. The Pharisees did tons of really good things, but they didn't have a heart of compassion for the people that they did those things for. I love the Greek word for compassion, one of my favorite Greek vocabulary words, splonk nitsamai. Everyone say that, splonk nitsamai. Splonknon is literally your guts in Greek. It's your, your, your innards, your insides. Splonknitsamai means to be moved in the inward parts. It means you feel something. You feel something. And this is the difference between Jesus and, and the, the acts of kindness that he has and for so often what so many of us feel, right? Is Jesus sees that and he's not angry or irritated, or maybe he is a little irritated, but, but the, the primary thing he feels is compassion, splonknitsamai. He cares for the people. It's not even like pity. He doesn't pity them. He has compassion on them. He sees past the problem, and he sees the person who's created in the image of God. And he says, I have to do something about this. My quiet time can wait. Our spiritual retreat can wait. And he allows himself to be interrupted for the sake of the crowds. And I just want to ask you for a moment, do you have splonknitsamai? Do you have compassion when you see someone in need? Or the opposite, I would say the opposite of kindness is coldness. Are you cold-hearted towards people? Do you look at someone in a place of need and you think, I bet they put themselves in that hole. I bet it's probably their own addictions. It's probably their own fault that they're unemployed. It's probably their own fault they're on, on the street corner. Do you look at someone and you're so blinded by the problem that you don't see the person behind it that's preventing you from feeling anything for them? And if that's you... There's two things I would say. First of all, you need to pray that God would give you a heart of compassion. I don't think we can change our own hearts, but the Holy Spirit can, and these are fruit of the Spirit. And you can ask God, if you recognize callousness or coldness in your heart, or maybe even cynicism in your heart towards people, pray and ask God to soften your heart, to tear down those walls, and to give you his eyes to see the people. And then the other thing you can do is remember 
that God has compassion on you and kindness on you. And remember the mercy. This is why it is so essential for us to be a people who are rooted and grounded in the gospel. So Jesus, he doesn't just have this heart of compassion. What does he do? He goes around and he actually gets to work. He starts healing people, miraculously healing every kind of affliction, every kind of disease. In Mark uh, chapter 6, Mark actually clues us in that Jesus doesn't only heal, he also teaches, right? And you see these two different aspects of Jesus's ministry, and we often see both of these things in tandem. R.T. France, New Testament scholar, puts it well. He says, Jesus's ministry was an integrated whole in which physical and spiritual need were met together. I wonder if people would say that about our church, that we have an integrated whole and we care not just about the spiritual but also the physical, or not just about the physical but also about the spiritual. It's a hard thing to get right. We, we tend to like tip the, the, the scales one way or the other. And for you, you might even get a little intimidated to think, okay, Jesus shows up and he's just touching people and healing people. And maybe you walk through a hospital and, and you've never had that experience where you're just laying your hands on the door and every, every patient is healed immediately. And we can get intimidated, right? I don't, know if, I don't know if I can do that. Well, here's what you can do. Speak kind words. It's our first practice for today. Jesus doesn't only heal, he also teaches. He also speaks to the people. He tells them about the kingdom of heaven. And for you, you might get that uh, Holy Spirit in the back of your mind that's leading you to say something kind, to encourage someone, to compliment someone, to send a text message, to write a thank you card. And then you have that immediate second thought, maybe we could call it the thought from the flesh, ah, probably wouldn't make that big of a difference. I'm sure plenty of people told them that they have nice glasses. Or maybe they're actually self-conscious about their glasses. And that's an opportunity that the Holy Spirit is giving you to encourage that person. Speak kind words. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. That it may give grace to those who hear. James, the brother of Jesus, reminds us the power that your tongue has, the dangerous power that your tongue has. And for many people who are walking away from the church and who've been hurt by the church, sometimes it is a, you know, a physical action, but more often than not, I can tell you this, it's words. It's words from Christian people. It's words from church people that did not know that the tongue is like a fire and it can ignite a forest fire and it can wreak so much havoc in people's lives, but the tongue is not just a weapon to destroy, it's a tool to build. And you can use your words, this is incredibly powerful, Don't, never underestimate the power of your words to speak kindness into people's lives. And one of the most kind things that you can say to someone is the gospel. And that's what Jesus is doing here, right? It's to tell people about who Jesus is, 
to tell people, get, to give people an accurate perspective of who God is and what he thinks of them and the lengths that God would go through in sending his son to die for them because he cares about them and he created them. Would we be a gospel-fluent church? And so Jesus is there. He's teaching all day. He's healing all day. It gets late. You might know how the story goes next. Verse 15. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. This is the wilderness. We're away from cities. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Who give them something to eat? Everyone say it. You give them something to eat. These are two different perspectives. There's a need that arises. What's the need? People are hungry. They didn't necessarily think about that before they were kind of running aimlessly along the shore to catch up with Jesus because they cared so much about their son being healed. They cared so much about hearing that next spiritual teaching from this famous rabbi. They cared so much about that that they forgot to pack a lunch. And now they've been there all afternoon, hours, and they're hungry. The two different perspectives, disciples, send them away that they might buy food for who? Themselves. They got themselves into this mess. They can get themselves out of this mess. Whose fault is it? Theirs. Who created the problem? They did. Who needs to find a solution? They can. Jesus hears this perspective, and he says, okay, why don't you do something about it? This is massive, okay? This is massive. At every point along this story, pay attention. Jesus, not only is he going to do something miraculous, and it shows us the power of God on display, but he's going to invite the disciples to do something. He's going to invite them to be part of the work. Every need that we see is an opportunity to show kindness. Every need, every person that we see who has a need, that's an opportunity to show kindness. And all too often, we either blame it on them, say they got themselves into this mess, they can get themselves out of it, we, we can show coldness, or maybe we even feel compassion, but we say, blessings, be filled. I'll pray for you. I'll pray for you right now, right? And James, once again, in, two, in chapter 2, verse 15, addresses this kind of faith. Look at what he has to say. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Jesus often talked about doing the Father's will. And when he talks about doing the Father's will, certainly it has to do with you know, obedience to his commandments, kind of these ethical, these ethical laws, right? But more often than not, if you pay attention to what Jesus is referring to, like Matthew chapter 25, the difference between the sheep and the goats, it's acts of mercy. You saw someone who was hungry, you gave them food. You saw someone who was in prison, you visited them. You saw someone who was a refugee, a stranger, you welcomed them. 
You saw someone who was naked, you gave them clothes, right? It's, it's not just seeing something and, and certainly not being cold and not even just seeing something and feeling compassion. Compassion is the attitude, but kindness is the action. So here's our next practice. Don't just speak kind words. Show kindness to someone in need. Show kindness to someone in need. Think about someone that you come across, and if there's a need that they have, and even a small way that you could help, you don't have to even solve their problem completely, but how can you help? How can I be the solution to the problem? And the disciples, they see the problem, and they say, that problem is their problem, right? But what Jesus is saying, what if you were the solution to the problem that you see? And when you start seeing the person behind the problem created in the image of God. And so now we have this moment where we're left asking, what is going to happen next? Jesus put the ball in the disciples' court. They have no idea what they're going to do. Let's continue the story in verse 17. And they said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said to them, bring them here to me. And then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. And he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And then he broke the loaves and gave them to who? Disciples. He's involving the disciples. They're going to get their hands dirty. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. So Jesus is performing a miracle, but they are doing something about it now, right? They're distributing the food. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. What we have here is we have a math problem, okay? Math problem. Five loaves plus two fish does not equal 20,000 meals. It's a math problem. And I say 20,000, there's 5,000 men, and let's say there was about 5,000 women, And in America, the average American household has 1.93 children. I don't know how you have 0.93 of a person, but (laughs) it's how it is. And so, you know, estimate, okay, maybe maybe it's 18,000, maybe it's 28,000, you know, about 20,000 people, right? About 20,000 people need a meal. And that's an obvious math problem right there. Five plus two does not equal 20,000. How in the world are we going to do this? And we, so often, like the disciples, are only thinking of our own power, our own resources, our own incapacity to do something. Don't let your incapacity blind you from seeing what we do have. Jesus looks at that, he's like, well, we got five loaves and two fish. And they say, we have only five loaves and two fish. There's another character in the story that Matthew leaves out, but John, in John chapter 6, includes. One of the best characters of the story is where did they get the five loaves and the two fish? And John tells us. In John 6, 8 through 9, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a who? A boy, a little kid here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Picture this little boy. He's on his way out the door. And his mom's like, you forgot to pack your lunch. He's like, mom, I got to go. And she's like, you're going to regret it. And he's like, I know. 
he grabs the, you know, the little barley loaves, he grabs the two dried fish, puts it in his little bag, and he's on his way. And he's the only one who did that out of 20,000 people. So it's like, we got to give credit, first of all, to his mom, because it wasn't him. It's his mom who made him do that. And this little boy, this is why I think these are the kinds of things you see this consistently all throughout scripture, where it's the 12-year-old, it's the teenager, it's the, it's the young person who is naive enough to believe that God can do something with what they have. This is why Jesus taught us the kingdom of heaven is for the, the least of these. We must become like the children. Here's our main point for today. Offer what you have and let God do the math. It might not add up. I can tell you it definitely won't add up if you're thinking about your own lack of capacity to do something about it, your own lack of resources. But offer what you have to God anyways and let him determine the outcome. Let him do the math. Here's here's the actual math equation. Five loaves plus two fish plus Jesus, that equals 20,000 meals. And the disciples were missing the most important aspect of that equation, is the power of God. And so often we're only looking at what we have to offer and it's not sufficient and it's not enough and I don't have that much money, I can't build a well in another country, I don't know, I don't have that many talent, I don't have that much ability, I don't really have a ton of time and we're so, we're, we're so shackled by our incapability and our insufficiency and we say the math, just, it just doesn't add up so I guess I'll do nothing. Be warm, be filled, I'll pray. But I guess I'll actually do nothing. And we're forgetting the most important aspect of that equation is the power of God. And so what we see is God is the one who supplies. God is the one who multiplies. There was a church in Corinth that the Apostle Paul was getting together a a collection for the church in Jerusalem. There was a bunch of people there who were struggling financially. And uh, other churches have all contributed, right? So think about that, right? There's this, this pool of money, and it's all being sent over. And the church in Corinth is like, I don't know. The math just doesn't seem to add up. I don't think our contribution would make that much of a difference. And this is the passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about, you know, God loves a cheerful giver, and it's really about our heart posture, Essentially, he's trying to prove to them they need to donate to this cause. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 10. He who supplies the seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. This story in Matthew chapter 14 is a literal and physical example of God multiplying something for a harvest of righteousness, right? But what Paul is doing is he's saying that that same principle is true when we offer God what we have. And it might not be much. It might not seem like much. In fact, the enemy is gonna try to convince you it's not enough. But when you remember that everything you have, who gave it to you? God, 
And if you offer it back to him, who's gonna multiply it and multiply the impact of it? God. And it's his harvest and it's his righteousness and it's his glory on display. And it's not up to you to actually determine or micromanage the outcome. It's up to you to offer what you have to God and let him do the math. You don't have to solve world hunger to buy someone lunch. You don't have to solve, you don't have to solve the water crisis. You know, there's, there, there's, there's hundreds of thousands of people in this world, millions of people who don't have access to clean water. You can help build a well, though. You can give someone a glass of water. You can give, you can give someone that. You, you don't have to solve all of these, you know, big global problems to do something. Don't do what you can't do. Do what you can do. And when we offer what we have to God, because he's the one who gave it to us anyways, and he's the one who will use it for his kingdom, we're gonna see a harvest of righteousness multiplied. God's gonna use those things in greater ways than we could ever ask or imagine. And God's kindness that he has shown to us, it has, a, it has an impact on us. It changes us. In Romans chapter two, verse four, Paul is speaking to the church and he says this, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? This is another one of those passages where God's justice and mercy are in tension with one another. Paul is talking about God's justice and his judgment for our sins and his wrath poured out on our sins. And yet he's saying the reason why God is patient with us and forbearant with us and kind to us is because it's actually his kindness that draws us back to him. Or in 1 John chapter 4, we hear that perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And so we have to stop using punishment as our gospel presentation, as our evangelistic technique, because it's actually the love of God, not the punishment of God. It's actually the kindness of God, not the wrath of God that draws us back to his heart, that draws us back to repentance. We don't follow Jesus out of fear. We follow him with everything because he first loved us. And so we see Jesus in Matthew 14. He's caring for the physical needs. He cares not only for the person who has a terminal illness and disease, he cares for the person who skipped one meal and is hungry. He cares for, for the big needs and the small needs. And he certainly cares for the spiritual needs as he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And we see something really interesting. Again, not in Matthew 14, but in John's version of the same exact account, Jesus actually, the crowds catch up with Jesus the next day because they eat, they have this, you know, this is what a powerful display of God's power. He's a God of provision. He's a God who is generous. He's plenteous. And, and, and yet the next day, the people come back and they're like, all right, all right, Mr. Bread and Fish, give me more bread and fish. And they want another magic trick. You know, they want another miracle. They want another happy meal. 
And I want to read to you, it's a little bit longer, it's from John chapter 6. I want to read to you Jesus' response to this perspective, lest we try to abuse the kindness of God. John chapter 6, verse 35, and Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What Jesus is teaching us is those physical acts of kindness they are great and they are important and God cares even if you go hungry for one meal. But what Jesus is teaching us is what our souls genuinely crave is him. Man does not live by bread alone but by every word that flows from the mouth of God. What our souls genuinely crave is God himself. And I'm here to tell you the gospel is that If God is drawing you, maybe God is drawing you today to understand his kindness and his mercy in a way that you've never understood before. The gospel is that Jesus is that son of God who died for your sins on the cross and rose back to life. And if you would believe in him, like John wrote, you would have eternal life. And that word believe, that word faith, it's not just I acknowledge those facts or I agree to a set of theological beliefs. Certainly that's important to believe that Jesus actually is the son of God. But what it really means is to put your full trust in Jesus. That he's the leader of your life. He makes the rules. He's the boss. He's the king. And you trust the sufficiency of the gospel that your sins might be Forgiven, And if today is the day that, that God is drawing you to himself, I would just invite you to respond. Today can be the day that you receive the bread of life, which is Christ Jesus himself. We're gonna have members of our prayer team at the end of service down here at the front of the stage. would invite you to come down and to have someone pray with you and for you to ask Jesus uh, to forgive your sin and lead your life. And I wanna invite you to respond by being baptized. Baptism is the way that that we declare our faith in Jesus. It's actually the way Jesus instructed us to put our faith in him. And you can find out more about baptism at hillcityboise.org slash baptism. And if that's you, I'll just encourage you as God draws you to himself to take those steps of faith every step of the way. But for you, maybe you've made that decision of faith and you still are, are grumpy or mean, or cold, or maybe you are compassionate, but you don't do anything with that compassion. I would just say to you, the source of our kindness is the gospel. And remember that, maybe that initial moment where you first experienced the kindness of God in your life. I think about that story where, where, where Jesus predicts that Peter would deny him. Do you remember that? And the moment that the rooster crows, Jesus is actually being beaten. 
He's falsely being put on trial by the Jewish leaders. And Peter is there in the courtyard in the dark of night around a fire. And he actually makes eye contact with Jesus. And I don't know if Jesus, it's hard to say, right? What he looked like in that moment. But I don't think he was angry. I mean, he knew that this would happen, right? He certainly wasn't surprised. Maybe he was disappointed. But you've got to believe that the eyes of Jesus Christ look at us even when we fail with compassion and kindness and mercy. And would you allow God's kindness that isn't just this one-time thing that you experience, but as we remember the gospel in our lives, be a source of kindness that transforms us to be a people that show kindness and compassion to the world that so desperately needs us. So I want to read that same passage we looked at from Titus 3, starting in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing, regeneration, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, we poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your kindness, your mercy. We thank you that you care about the crises we face in this world. You care about the Ukraine. You care about poverty. You care about hunger and homelessness. You care about sickness. You care about people still facing COVID. You care about all of the different things in this world. And you even care about our grumbling stomachs when we are hungry. You care about our daily bread. And I pray that your kindness and your mercy and your compassion would be something we feel and experience daily in our lives. And that would fuel us and drive us to have compassion for the lost. Compassion for every need that we encounter. And that would overflow to kindness. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Hill City Church Podcast. You can find out more about our church at hillcityboise.org. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Hill City Boise. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you follow Jesus with everything.